You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Welcome. This is Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President here at CSIS, and I'm joined today by Julie Gerberding, co-chair of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security and Chief Patient Officer at Merck. Thank you for joining us, Julie. Thank you for having me. Yesterday, uh, March 4th, you testified uh, at the full committee, the Homeland Security Committee up in the House of Representatives. We had a chance to join you at that hearing. Uh, It came at this amazing moment in terms of congressional action. Later in the day, the House passed out the $8.3 billion emergency supplemental. So it was a very important moment. You also yesterday had the opportunity to interact with and brief uh, different caucuses within the House on both the Democratic and Republican side, as well as to speak to the press from the perspective of industry, and also plenty of opportunity to talk about the commission's work. Let's start with the hearing itself. What was your main intention there? What were the messages that you wanted to convey uh, to those? There were about 15 or 16 members, pretty evenly split between Democrats and Republicans who were there, including uh, Chairman Thompson and the ranking minority member, Congressman Rogers. No, I thought the hearing was really focused on getting information. It was intended to inform the full committee and help them understand the context and the current situation as well as the outlook for the evolving coronavirus outbreak in the United States in a global context as well. So I was really pleased with the respectful tone and the true focus on facts and understanding the ebb and flow of these cases as they emerge. And what do you attribute that to? I mean, the spirit of civility and seriousness that came across was was very encouraging. We know there's been a lot of partisan tension uh, within the House on every imaginable issue, but including this issue. There have been some confrontations, but here we saw a different kind of atmosphere. You know, I went into the hearing hoping that this would be about how to foster collaboration and not combat or to put it in a more proactive light, that we would really be concentrating on protection instead of politics. And I wasn't disappointed. I really thought that the questions were thoughtful. People were probing the witnesses to really understand the details of what is happening at the front line in particular. We heard a great deal of information from Dr. Iziki about what is happening in the state of Illinois and the complexities of the local reality. So I think the the members did an outstanding job of really listening and asking the right questions. What were your other main messages that you wanted to deliver? You know, I really wanted to try to get across uh, the situation that we're in right now. Of course, at the beginning of an outbreak, the focus is on trying to contain it at its source, in this case in China. I think China did us a huge favor by clamping down the way they did and maybe buying some time so that the rest of the world has more opportunity to prepare. But I don't think any of us thought that it was going to be 100% successful once we understood how transmissible this virus was. So where we are now is in a situation where we are trying to slow the spread. 
And as we transition from that phase of containment to the phase of slowing spread and still keeping our businesses and our security Mm -hmm. and safety intact, we will see less emphasis on borders and travelers and more emphasis on community measures to increase social distancing and slow spread. Now, you served for eight years as head of CDC. So, And in that period during the George W. Bush presidency, those two terms, of course, we faced many, many similar uh, outbreaks that stressed the system and demanded action and put CDC into a close interface with state, local, county public health officials. In this current situation, give us a little more context. We now have $8.3 billion coming forward. We heard from Dr. Aziki yesterday around the strong interface between CDC experts coming in to support the efforts at the state and local levels in Illinois. What can we expect now in terms of stabilizing the situation and moving forward? I won't be surprised if the greatest need is for hospital surge, that as we see more cases as well as worried well people, our hospitals will be faced with a situation that is at least comparable to what we see with bad seasonal influenza outbreaks. But in addition, we're likely to have many more worried well people who have been someplace or been around someone or just develop an unexpected febrile illness, and they're going to be very scared that they have coronavirus. And do you think that, do you think that people are going to overrun the system, that we're at risk of a flood of worried well? You know, that's really the purpose of the social distancing and the measures to try and slow spread because we want to lower the peak impact in the community and that reduces the stress and strain on the healthcare system. We've all been reading about the difficulties of, of and the barriers to getting testing underway within the United States. Can you offer a little bit of explanation? What has happened in terms of this earlier phase where CDC was charged with developing uh, its own test, but then there were lots of delays. And then suddenly there's been a burst, a change of uh, the log jam's been broken, it looks like, with FDA coming in and offering the opportunity to uh, different private sector and university-based labs to begin developing their tests. You know, this is a brand new infection. And so we didn't have an existing test, and one had to be developed very quickly. And if you think about it, when the cases are mainly somewhere else, how do you validate the test? Yes. You don't have the clinical material necessary to understand the sensitivity and the, the actual performance of the test that you're developing. So I think CDC has at its core the ability to do this fairly quickly. And through the years, I think they've been brilliant at developing diagnostic tests. So obviously something went awry in this situation and I'm sure they're getting to the bottom of it, but I feel that they've been making very confident statements about solving that problem. The second problem then is scale, and it does take time even for commercial labs to do the same thing. They have to develop their own version of the test, and then they have to validate its performance. And while we are concerned about the number of cases in the United States, we still have very few when it comes to utilizing the specimens from those patients to prove that the test is accurate. Now, you spoke uh, yesterday at the hearing very eloquently around the need for trust and credibility of leadership. What did you mean by that? 
Well, the one lesson learned in all of the outbreaks that I've been involved with personally, as well as those that I've looked on upon since I left the CDC, I, I believe that the common theme that determines success or failure is the trust people have in the decisions that are being made. And that trust has to happen at the federal level, of course, but also at the state and local level. At the end of the day, the person people most trust in an outbreak situation is their own doctor. But how do you make sure that the local doctor has the right information and can be responsive with a fact-based approach. That requires usually the CDC, which has the most information about the public health and medical response, to get that information into the health alerting system so that it can be in the hands of the frontline people who need it the most. One of the ways they are, of course, doing that is through daily conference calls with the whole cascade of people in the state and local communities so that the latest and greatest information is available. Do you think the recommendations of the commission, we put out our report in November, are they still relevant to this situation? When I was preparing for the hearing yesterday, I went and reread our, our commission report, and I believe we were anticipating exactly a situation like this. Of course, in the United States, the focus is very much on what's happening here. But when you step back and look at the recommendations in the report that pertain to global preparedness, we're only as strong as our weakest link. And I think that's really what we were trying to address, that this is about global health security, and health security is national security. I'm very encouraged to see, um, at the same time that action was being taken on the $8.3 billion emergency supplemental, which does include over a billion dollars for international programs, that the World Bank came forward with a $12 billion uh, facility for low-income and lower-middle-income countries. Uh, which is historic and also very consistent with what we've been arguing, that there needs to be this kind of fast action. And it was with the full support of the U.S. Treasury and the executive, U.S. Executive Director's Office. We are the largest shareholder in the World Bank. So we were leaning forward in that context in moving ahead on multilateral basis to bring more support to this effort. Tell us about the role that industry plays, because you sit in that role. You've been Co-chair, you're the former director of CDC and you're a leader of, of one of the major global uh, pharmaceutical companies. Industry plays a vitally important role in the partnerships with government and with others in moving forward the response to this particular uh, outbreak. You know, the biopharmaceutical industry does have the long-term solution here. Uh, yesterday, I was participating in briefings with large pharmaceutical scientists, um, but I'm also a member of the executive committee of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization that represents many of the smaller biotech companies. And there are actually 40 biotech companies that are involved in products, either for prevention or treatment of the coronavirus. So this early in the game, that is a heroic step up to the plate. And I think that's exactly what industry needs to do. We need to look at what assets we have in-house or what capabilities we have, and then figure out how can we link what we know how to do with the broader community of in innovators and accelerate progress on the problem. Merck has a lot of experience in recent years because of our engagement in producing the Ebola vaccine, Erbivo, which was produced in similar emergency circumstances in the context of the Western African uh, Ebola virus outbreak. That 
vaccine was actually started almost 20 years ago, and it took a long time and a lot of money to bring it through multiple partnerships and ultimately to Merck. Um, it was not licensed in the United States until December of 2019. So it tells you that one of the most important trust factors in all of this is that we in the industry are going to have to be careful not to overpromise the delivery times or mm -hmm. the value of any particular mm -hmm. thing we're working on. But at the same time, I think we need to be proud of the fact that we are part of the solution and we need to own that and make that very visible. It's kind of ironic at a time when the industry is not in high favor that it is the place that the president and the Congress and, and many people turn to to help solve the problem we're currently facing. Well, the supplemental includes, I think it's upwards of $3 billion towards vaccine development. I mean, there's a very heavy slug of, of, of public sector funding coming forward for this, which shows how much how much emphasis is being placed on trying to um, accelerate the development of a vaccine, which we don't have today, and to be very realistic about what the timeline might look like. Tony Fauci's talked about this. Can you tell us, like, what's your operating assumption around what's the most optimistic scenario and what's what are some of the other scenarios? Because as you point out, this is a new virus. We're into a lot of unknowns in trying to figure out as the field trials unfold for this. What would you what would you say to the average citizen who's asking, when are we going to have a vaccine realistically that can be helpful? The very most optimistic scenario is that this coronavirus will be seasonal and that in the northern hemisphere, as the summer rolls around, it will go away. I don't have confidence in that because that has not been the pattern of other outbreaks. Even the most recent 2009 influenza outbreak was not seasonal. So um, I want to take that off the table. I think you have to distinguish between the speed with which we can develop measures for treatment versus the speed with which a vaccine will emerge. Treatments may happen much faster. We have existing antiviral molecules that are already in clinical trials if they prove to be helpful. That will be wonderful because perhaps we can reduce the high fatality rate that we're seeing. But small molecules like the pills and the antiviral medicines are much faster to produce and much faster to scale. So it's realistic. We could have a treatment if we're lucky in short order. There are many, many other promising treatments. Merck, many companies have antivirals. And of course, we're screening them against coronaviruses to see if we get any signal with our existing products, but also a lot of the chemicals that we have on the shelf. Vaccines are different because they're big molecules. Usually they are uh, complex to manufacture. And most importantly, because you're administering them to otherwise very healthy people, you have to be very confident in their safety. So the development cycle to get that safety information and also to prove that they work is much longer. And that is something that I think pushes the timeline for the availability of a proven vaccine and a safe vaccine well into next year. In closing, Julie, if I could just ask you, as you look out in the next six to 12 months, uh, what are the issues that are of greatest concern to you? There are two. I am concerned that this is going to hit people harder than we think. We live in a society where not only do we have vulnerable elderly people, but we have a large number of uh, middle-aged people who are living with chronic diseases and could be at special risk for this kind of serious respiratory infection. 
My other concern relates to the impact this will have on communities. We've seen in past outbreaks the stigma that is associated with a new infection, and there's a tendency to blame other people for the cause, and that can result in some very unfortunate social consequences for people who are not the problem. It's the virus. It's not the people who are affected or who are from a particular population segment. And I think that bleeds into the concern that as we focus on trying to ward off the virus, that we allow our systems of social security, safety, and civil society to deteriorate to the point where we end up causing more harm from the disruption in our communities than we do from the actual virus itself. So what gives you the greatest hope? I think my greatest hope is that I've watched Americans and people around the world respond to some pretty frightening outbreaks in the past, and we do rise to the occasion. We sometimes rise to the occasion because our countermeasures work, but mostly we rise to the occasion because we take a deep breath and we take what's going on in stride, and we do the right things. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for your commitment and generosity to CSIS and leading the Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security with former Senator Kelly Ayotte, and thank you for all your leadership and service to our country and to the industry. Well, thank you, Steve, and I do appreciate everything CSIS is doing for this and for many of the health problems that plague the world. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.